As you remain standing in body or spirit, we'll go before God's word, quite likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting what was called the Shema. Jesus, of course, made it the basis for the great commandment, which we'll read uh, this morning in the scripture. So if you'll follow after me in Hebrew, we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Chad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, The setting uh, for the next uh, three weeks of messages is the 10th chapter of Luke. We're beginning in verse 25 today, going through verse 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. A number of years ago, I went to a preaching conference with a a famous preaching professor, and he read this text, and he announced that the problem with the text was that the man asked Jesus a bad question, because the man said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the preacher went on to say that eternal life is given from Jesus, and so it's nothing that you do and you cannot earn. Wonderful sermon. Problem is, I came to find out many years after that preaching conference as I began to study the the first century in which Jesus lived, that actually the question about eternal life often wasn't in first century about going to heaven. The question was about how do I participate in what God is doing in the world? So let me put it another way. When someone stands up to ask Jesus the question, what must I do to have life? They're not talking about going to heaven. They're talking about participating in heaven on earth and bringing heaven to earth. Another way to think of it is like this. Do you remember years ago, I think it was 2004 or five, Joel Osteen uh, wrote a book that sold 8 million copies your best life now. They turned it into calendars. They turned it into a board game and it was extremely successful. Well, one way to think about the first century is this. When you ask a teacher about how you can participate in the life that God has for you in the kingdom, you're really talking about Jesus. How do I have my best life now? How do I live the way you want me to live? And so um, the preacher said that was a bad question. Actually, it was a pretty good question. And it was a question as we did the research that um, with Ray Vanderland and others, we found out it was one of the major questions of the day. You know, in our day, you know, people ask questions like, well, if I've never heard of Jesus, will I go to heaven? Or what are the qualifications to be a pastor? If I've had certain things happen in my life, can I, am I disqualified? Uh, we, we ask all sorts of questions that are, and even, of course, even in our day about uh, human sexuality, and they're sort of hot button issues. Well, the hot button issue in the first century is how do I participate in the life that God has for me? What is it that God really wants? And there were two major answers to that question. The first one is this, um, uh, that what God wants you is to love the Lord, to do is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And everybody agreed on that. But where the debate came is, okay, then what? 
And there was a group of people who said the next most important thing is that you keep yourself pure, ritually pure, ritually clean, that you avoid all sorts of things that you're supposed to avoid and therefore you are able to uh, lead worship and participate in worship in the temple. And that was one set of answers. But another answer to the question was this, that the second most important thing wasn't about your purity and your holiness. The second most important thing was love your neighbor. And Jesus jumps right into the debate in Mark, the 12th chapter, and again today in Luke, the 10th chapter. So that he is actually answering the question and getting in the debate. There's a background to it. The two great teachers about 100 years before Jesus disagreed. Um, There was one guy, his name was Shammai. He was a great teacher. And the story is told that a Gentile once came to him and knocked on his door and said, "Uh, if you will teach me all of the Jewish Torah while I stand on one foot, I'll convert. And Shammai took a stick and chased the guy out of the house and said, how can I do that? And yelled at him. And uh, so he went to another guy's house whose name is Hillel. And and Hillel was actually one of the ones that would end up training the person who trained Paul later. But Hillel, uh, he came the same, asked the same question and Hillel said, okay. So the guy stood on one foot and Hillel said, that which you find hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Of course, that's the inverse of what we call the golden rule. But the key thing was that Hillel knew that, uh, that it's important not just to love God, but how you treat your neighbor's important. And so what we see this morning in our scripture is Jesus is all in on the second answer, which is you not only love God, you've got to love your neighbor. So I thought we'd take just a minute and look at the two key words and love your neighbor. It's Leviticus 19, verse 18. The first word we want to look at is love. And you need to know that almost without exception in the Bible, when you come across the word love, it's not an emotion, it is an action. It's the way you treat somebody. They would argue as rabbis, how could God command us to love somebody, to have like a mushy feeling or something towards somebody? Uh, it would be very difficult to do. Uh, but so for example, let's say your, your sports team is playing another sports team and you know, it's really hard to like have a warm feeling in their heart for them or their fans, but it does not prevent you from treating them in a civil or respectful manner. Love is about an action before it is about an emotion. I think one of the difficulties and reasons in the, in the church that we find ourselves, um, one of the reasons we find ourselves in difficulty in the church this day is a lot of people believe that their faith is exercised in their opinions. I have the right stand on this issue or the right stand on that issue or the right stand on this Bible verse. And that's what makes me a Christian. Well, your stands and beliefs are not unimportant, trust me. But biblically, that has never been the case. What makes you a Christian and and what makes you a follower of Jesus is the way you treat other people. Love is always, first of all, an action. It is not an emotion. So when we think about love, we think about how is it we are going to treat our neighbor. And it's fundamental. Love God requires that we love neighbor. You can't have one without the other. Story is told about uh, um, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, of course, involved in a struggle against apartheid in South Africa. He came to Atlanta to teach a class for a year at Emory University. And the students halfway through the first semester got started complaining to the dean. They said, all he ever talks about every, every week in the class is love. And so they passed it on to uh, Tutu and he addressed the class on the the following week when they all got together. He said, I understand 
some of you are upset that, that all I talk about each uh, week in class is love. I will tell you, when you are able to fulfill that, our class will progress further. That's pretty much the Christian faith. Don't co- try to go deeper with Jesus if you're not willing to love the people around you. So the first term is love, and it's about how we treat them. Second term is neighbor, and this is fascinating. I was reading a a rabbi talking about it in Leviticus, and I think Jesus would agree with this completely. Notice how it doesn't say love humanity. It says love your neighbor. It's a very concrete thing. Have you ever noticed if you love everybody, you probably just like love nobody, really? Uh, that it's, it's, the, it's the specifics that make it love, the concrete way that you deal with the people around you. And the word neighbor uh, that's from the Hebrew, and then we get into the New Testament here, means somebody with whom you have regular contact. So it's specifically in the Bible, and Jesus picks up on this, you need to love the people with whom you have regular contact because if you can't love them, you're not gonna love anybody else. That is your neighbor. Uh, the great C.S. Lewis said uh, decades ago, he said, next to Holy Communion, the holiest object that God will ever put in front of your senses is your neighbor. That's how special biblically your neighbor is to you. Your neighbor is your chance to show how you love God by loving your neighbor. I think about it with our cross. It's interesting to me, when you look at it, you really understand love of God and, and how God has loved us in the, um, the vertical. But then we also have the horizontal bar. You love God, but you love your neighbor and the two of them are needed. So if that's so, and Jesus has been te- teaching this and his followers have been teaching it for 2000 years, why don't I do it? Why don't I love my neighbor more? Well, I, with the help of this book, I narrowed down three things why I'm not as great at loving my neighbors as I need to be. The first one is just an obvious one. I probably don't know them well. I probably don't know my neighbors as well as I should. So here's a little thing. It's an insert. I want you to find it in your bulletin this morning. This is from the book. And, um, and I'm going to give you like two minutes to start on this exercise. Here's the exercise. The house in the middle of the diagram is your house. We're going to pretend uh, not everybody lives in this situation, but we're going to pretend there are people who live across the street from you, behind you, and next door to you. The object is when you get home, see if you can, uh, letter A in each box is name the person in these boxes. So the neighbor on my left-hand side, her first name in our neighborhood, um, well, and I'll give you Mrs. Smith. I know her first name, but let, we'll protect her in case she don't want to be called out as having to live next door to me. Uh, so I write her name, that's A. B, something about her. Um, I know about her children. I know about her grandchild that comes to visit. And uh, there are some things I know. I know her husband was a uh, CPA. Uh, so there are some things. And then, then something else that I learned that I wouldn't learn just by observation. Um, and, and I could fill that in about some of the things. Uh, she's a wonderful neighbor and it's a kind of fun to, uh, she really loves a garden and uh, things like that. I could, I could fill out. So the object is to do three things for the nine, for the eight houses closest to you. Can you name them? Can you, by just simple observation, can you tell, well, they drive a red car, or they have two kids or whatever. And then third, can you say something deeper about their life that you wouldn't know unless you'd talked with them? So, See if you can do two houses on either side. So Mary Lou, a little um, music.
Thank you, Mary Lou. It's so fun to work with Mary Lou. I just told her during the doxology, be ready to play something in the middle of the sermon. (laughs) And she did. Okay, when I did this, I had advance notice, obviously. I, I was able to, to get all three, uh, A, B, and C, on, sev- on um, seven of the eight people that were uh, closest to me. And the reason is I'm married to Pam McNitsky. And I can say this because she's not in the service this morning. She's one of the most amazing neighbors that, uh, that I know. And so I follow my wife around and, and I meet these people. So one of the challenges is, do I even know my neighbor? That's kind of the first thing. And so I hope over the next few weeks um, that if you never had a chance to get to know your neighbors, you might uh, look for an opportunity to, to know them a little better. Halloween is a great time, by the way, to uh, do that. Uh, Christmas parties are a good time. Let me move on. Second one, I think for me, it's just time. Yeah, it's it, it, finding time already in your schedule to do something you're not doing right now is a challenge. Some of you may remember I told you years ago, 1967, there was testimony before Senate subcommittee, and it was a futurist. And his testimony was that the, the time-saving devices in America invented so quickly that he estimated that by 1990, the problem in America is we'll have too much time on our hands, and the average work week would be only 28 hours. Our big problem would be, what would we do with all our time? I wonder if we can go back and get him for lying to Congress. Because for most of us, time really is, as they say, the new currency. It's harder even to come by than money. But my experience of my own life is, I will make time for the stuff that's significant. So in the midst of everything else I wanted to do yesterday, I made time to watch my team lose a football game and I made time to go to my three-year-old grandson's birthday party. I mean, those things were important to me. Can we, I guess, the question is, value neighbors as much as Jesus does? And then finally, another reason I'm not as good about knowing my neighbors is I, I think there's a certain fear factor um, that maybe I'll get involved in something over my head or, or even worse, they won't even answer the door if I ring the doorbell. Or if I stop by with, um, uh, while they're washing the car, they, they may not even turn their head. There is, there is I think, with me always uh, a bit of a fear factor. Natural introvert, it gets multiplied. But, but part of what I want to share with you is that fear never goes away in life. Our options are when we have a fear, will we be willing to face it? You can't live without fear. 
but can you walk into fear? And one of the ways that not, you may or may not have this advantage, one of the ways in my neighborhood I'm learning how to walk into my fear is walk my dog. Because people will stop me to talk about my dog. Or, or my dog always wants to be petted and then we begin to have a conversation. But I've learned if I give in to my fear, I, a lot of times I won't leave my front door except to go to work or to go to the grocery store. There's a famous story about the Essex. You may, be, you may remember it because it was Herman Mel, Mel based Moby Dick on the Essex. This whaling ship, 1820, whaling ship got hit in the middle of the ocean by a sperm whale and split apart. So the crew had to get on three rowboats and they had to figure out what to do. And they knew that the closest islands were really in one direction, uh, but they were still many hundreds of miles, but they were afraid because they didn't know the inhabitants of those islands and they were afraid they would be cannibals and they might eat them. They knew to row the other direction was further, but they thought it might be safer. So they rowed the other direction and rowed and rowed and rowed and failing to reach land, they ran out of water and food, and guess what? Sadly, they began to cannibalize each other. The very thing they feared, they rode right into. How much better if we just take our fears head on in life, and, um, and maybe the person next door isn't as interested in us, but we don't know if we don't come to greet them. I was reading this past week about a Jewish legend. So this is not in your Bible. Don't go look for it. The legend was, how did God decide Jerusalem is where the temple would be? Um, And that is long before King David. In fact, long before uh, the Israelites ever, uh, the Hebrews ever arrived in Jerusalem, there were two brothers that lived in the area of where the temple would one day be built. And the two brothers, one had no children and the other had many children. And the one with many children often struggled to make ends meet because he had so many mouths to feed. And the one that uh, didn't have children had enough to eat, but was um, uh, didn't usually have people to celebrate with. One year, they both had a bumper crop. And so the one that had no children said, this is completely ridiculous. My brother... Uh, down the road is struggling to feed his family and I can do something about it, but he's got so much pride, I'm gonna have to go in the middle of the night and sneak some food into his barn. And meanwhile, his brother down the road says, you know, my brother never has anyone to celebrate life with. I'm gonna go and, and I'm usually don't do very well. I never have any surplus, but this year I've got some surplus. I'm gonna go sneak some in his barn. And when he finds out all this food he has, I'm gonna suggest that he throw a party. And so in the night, each of them went and slipped food into the other's barn. So when they woke up the next day, they had just the same amount of food as when they started. And so they thought they were dreaming that they hadn't done anything. So the next night they decided they would stay awake and each of them, unknown of course to the other, went and were able to put the food in the other barn. And, and then they both realized, well, wait a minute, I know I should have less food in my barn. Uh, I'm going to I'll try it again tonight, but I'm going to go a little bit earlier. I'm going to be alert. So they both set out to go a little bit earlier, fully alert with their food. They were going to take to the other brother's barn and they ran into each other and they realized what they were doing. And brothers who hadn't had as close a relationship as they might hugged and wept. And God looked down and said, brothers, who are good neighbors, 
I think that's where I'll build my temple. God's presence will always come to those who love their neighbor.